Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 8? Genesis chapter 8. Again, welcome everyone listening on Abounding Grace, uh, listening live, a live broadcast here on uh, Grace FM or watching on whatever live stream. You're like in the room with us, so we're glad that you're here. We're jumping into Genesis 8 where we left off, and I've entitled our Bible study, Saved to be Sent. Saved to be Sent. And you remember back in Genesis chapter 6, in verse 8, we learn that Noah, and actually there's that, that word but, but Noah, with everything going on around him, all that's happening in the world, all the sin, all the debauchery, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he's been our focus for the last few studies. In the midst of a crooked and a corrupt generation, there was a man who walked with God. There was a man who found grace. He found grace from God. He wasn't perfect, and he wasn't completely obedient. He wasn't completely loyal, but he was as much as a man could be. He really loved God. The society of Noah, remember, what, what, what he lived in is what Jesus said the last days would look like. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down in Matthew 24 and verse 38. Jesus says very plainly, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. We've learned that the time of Noah was a time of intense demonic activity, sexual immorality, violence, perversity, a total disregard for the things of God. So much so with all of the spare time that people had, they would make up things. Their imaginations were always thinking about sin and making up new ways to sin. And the Bible says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And can you imagine what the days of Noah would have been like with social media, with the internet, with the technology we have today. Can you just imagine what that would be like? You know, you don't need to imagine. You're living it. The days of Noah accelerated. The days of Noah exasperating. Sin multiplying. Traveling around instantaneously. And as we drop into chapter 8, the flood has come. Judgment arrived. Noah and his family enters the barge or the large boat that they built together. And we learn that for safety's sake, Noah and his family were only safe in the ark. Nowhere else was safety found. In obedience, Noah was saved as he entered the ark, which we learn is a picture of Jesus Christ. Today, you are only safe in Christ. 
the only place of safety on the earth, the only place of salvation, the only source of truth. For us, safety is found only in Jesus. And I wonder how many gather together just to have a safe refuge for a few minutes to have your minds focused back on the Lord. Just, just a safe refuge. Just a taste of what true safety is where your minds are focused on the Lord. I know so many times it is a safe place to be in the Lord. I just feel so comforted and encouraged as my mind is fixed on the Lord. Just reminded of his goodness and his greatness and his love for me. Notice now in verse one of chapter eight. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And the, God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Interesting in verse one, is it? It says, God remembered Noah. Now we read that in the English language. Almost, almost, almost always we would associate that as if God forgot about Noah. But the English doesn't really capture the Hebrew language here. The emphasis isn't like God saying, oh no, what happened? Where did they go? I forgot where Noah was and what's happening on the earth. It's not like he forgot Noah, but rather it speaks of a constant reminding. Not only that, the phrase here in the Hebrew is a Hebrew figure of speech or a Hebrew idiom. And the idea behind this idiom is that whenever God is remembering, whenever it's mentioned that he remembers, it's the beginning of a new, fresh set of action on God's part for the person that's addressed. So now God is going to begin to work after all of the judgment came, the floodwaters start to recede, God is going to begin to work again with Noah. And I like the idea and the truth, even just in the English language, that God remembered Noah that Noah came to God's mind, that he cared for Noah, that he cared for his family, that he thought about him, that he remembered him. I mean, think about Noah's condition in the family of the long hours and the long weeks and months, the time that they were in the ark, the time that they now are dealing with more weeks than months. The silence from heaven was probably difficult to explain. He was given an instruction they followed the instruction, and then he waited. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Where it feels as if God's silent on the matter? Where you, did, you even begin to doubt, did I hear him correctly? <laughs> I heard what he said, and I obeyed that step, and then there's silence. And one of the reasons why, if there is a season of silence where God has you waiting for a new word, a new fresh word, one of the things that we so quick, see, God remembers Noah, but I'll tell you what, we quickly forget that our relationship with God is by faith. And if God gave us everything we wanted when we wanted, where would be the faith? Where would be the faith? God allows circumstances and situations to draw out of us a response and we either respond with faith or faithlessness. Now, the good news is this. You go, well, I, know. I probably respond more with faithlessness than anything. Well, the good news is this. The Bible says that even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. And so even in our faithlessness, God is faithful to us. God didn't forget Noah. 
Noah was always on his mind and his family. And see, he caused a wind to pass, it says in verse 1. He caused a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The Hebrew word here is ruach. It's a, a word to describe breathing, the moving of life. Wind often is a symbol used in the scriptures of the Holy Spirit. The world is covered with water and the wind is moving over the waters. And water so often is a picture of, of the word or for the Hebrew mindset, water is a sign of life, a necessity in life. And I was reminded, just taking us into seeing our King Jesus in John 6, 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that I speak to you. Tonight, God is imparting to us life through his spiritual word, giving us fresh life, an area we didn't even know we needed, a fresh infusion of his spiritual life. And it also reminded me, as you remember in the beginning, where was the spirit but hovering? And now as a new second chance through Noah and his family, where is the Spirit? Across the waters. Bringing about and preparing for what God has up ahead. Even as the Holy Spirit leads us and goes before us to prepare what he has for us. So they're in the ark for about 190 days, give or take, and the waters start to recede. And you notice in verse 5, it says, the waters decrease continually until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And actually, come back to verse 4. It says, then the ark rested on the 7th month and the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. The resting of the ark was for the salvation of all mankind. When you, hear, when you read of this verse the ark rested, I want you to remember that God kept his word. He saved these eight souls. So it wasn't just merely a command or some fanciful illustration from the scriptures to be safe. The only place of safety was in the ark. This resting of the ark proves God's word. He kept it. They are alive. They were saved in the ark. And the Bible says here that the, mount, that the ark rested in the mountains of Ararat. As one commentator put it, and I quote, Mount Ararat is about 16,000 feet in altitude. When they exited, they would have, been, have to leave it and find lower ground. They wouldn't be able to use it to build houses and such. And remember, he says, it's also covered with pitch inside and out. And that's why this commentator says, I believe that God will use the ark as a last day's witness and I believe, like many today, that it's still there on Mount Ararat. Just as it spoke of judgment in the days of Noah, so too will it speak of the coming judgment in the modern days of Noah. Isn't that amazing? Even to consider, if it's still there, it's going to be quite the testimony of the faithfulness of God. As we learned last time, uh, how so many people today, probably top five uh, things in the Bible that are attacked, a worldwide flood is one of them. To minimize it all, it was just a little small flood in a small part. No, it was a worldwide flood. And there's a neat insight. You can jot it down if you want to look at it later and study it for yourself. But there's a neat truth 
for those that study these things on the day that the ark rested. It was the 17th day of the seventh month. And it's no coincidence that Jesus himself was crucified on the 14th day of the seventh month and he rose from the dead three days later on the 17th day. Having passed through the waters of judgment, Jesus stood in resurrection upon the earth and thus, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, true, real rest is only found in Christ. Unbelievable, the goodness and faithfulness of God. Pick up now in verse 6. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. Verse 10. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth, and he waited yet another seven days, sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So the raven is sent out. I mean, really, if you, it came to pass. I like that. All the storms, all the trials. Noah opens up the, up the window, and what does he see? It was probably a very discouraging sight. It was probably not as clean as we read it in the scriptures. So probably very sad and solemn moment as the waters recede. Soggy, desolate, deserted, the consequence of many deaths. And he is ready to step into the newness of life and he sends out these birds, a raven and a dove. Now the raven, remember, is an unclean animal and the dove would be a clean animal. The raven, he finds a home in the judge and condemned world, but the dove does not. And so symbolically, the raven here can represent the devil, and the dove would represent the spirit. And the raven takes off and doesn't come back, but the dove can't find a place and returns. The Bible says that if you love this world, you don't have the love of God in you. I mean, that's a challenging verse, because we, immediately we can become all defensive and say, I don't love this world. I love God. And I would believe you if you said that. I, I wouldn't argue. I would believe you. But as, as followers of Christ, we have to pause and really have God search our hearts. Because I could say to you, and I hope you believe me, I don't love this world. I long for the world to come. I love God. But just like when Joshua, another type of Jesus, went into the promised land, there were always pockets of resistance in the promised land. There was victory, defeat, victory, defeat. Paul would describe it as the battle between the spirit and the flesh. And while I can say to you with great confidence, both those of you that I get to look in the eye and then considering everyone listening or watching in right now, I can say with great confidence that I love God 
and I do not love this world, at the same time I know there are pockets of resistance. Because there are just parts of this world that I do like at times. Like the Dodgers, for example. <laughs> Who doesn't like the Dodgers? And there's just a great joy that you could have in watching a baseball game. And yet you can get caught up in it all. And baseball can become an idol to you. It can be something very nice and enjoyable and entertaining, but it can become an idol to you. You can have a hobby that you like. I like to read. I read a lot. But even reading can become an idol. Or the technology of the day, an idol. Or spending countless hours. I don't even say spending. Wasting countless hours navigating through the catacombs of social media. Idolatrous. And feeding you just the garbage of this world. Do you not think that's going to affect you? You don't want to live like the raven and find a place of safety and security in a, dis, in a judged world. This is a judged world. It is living under the wrath of God by the grace of God, even as I speak. And that's one illustration here. Another one I'd like to point out here when it comes to the raven and the dove is that it speaks to us today of how God cares for clean animals and the unclean animals. We have the dove and the raven together. And to me, symbolically, that shows us that God not only cares for his family, you and me that follow him, he loves you. He loves you supremely. Gave his only begotten son on behalf of you. He loves you. He is for you, not against you. Those of you that love him and worship him have a relationship with him. But you know that God loves those that are in rebellion with him too. The clean and the unclean. We might have this snap judgment like David did at times. Judge them. Take care of my enemies. <laughs> and God says, I am taking care of my enemy and your enemies in my timing. But I love them. Even if at this moment you don't love them very much. <laughs> the clean and the unclean. Those that are in rebellion against him. And yet at the same time, we learn from God that there is a line of crossing that is a line of no return. If you are living a life in rebellion to God today, there is a line you can cross of no return. It's often referred to as the unforgivable sin. Or in a more technical biblical sense, it's referred to as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let, let me read to you. Let, let, we haven't turned. Go over to Matthew with me. Matthew chapter 12. I want to spend a moment on, although God does love the rebel, and God does love the sinner, and God did send Jesus for the rebel, don't get comfortable in your sin. Don't think you've got it made. You hear stories of last-minute conversions on a deathbed. Last-moment repentance. You hear stories like that, and it's true. God will receive the repentant even before their last breath. Yes, yes, he will. He will hear the, the prayer of repentance, and he will forgive a person even in their last moment. Uh, you know, there's a couple problems with that if you're going to wait for your last moment. Number one is you don't know when your last moment is. You aren't going to be able to plan that. But at the same time, you are tempting the Lord your God by continuing to live in sin and think he's okay with it. He's not okay with it. Never mistake the love and the grace of God as approval. He doesn't approve of your sin. Your sin and mine nailed Jesus to the cross. 
He doesn't approve of it. He goes, well, you know, I haven't been judged for it yet. Here I am. He's allowing me to say this and do this and post this. And he, I don't, it doesn't, he, here he is. God must approve it. No, 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 no. God gave us a principle to describe that. And it's simply this. Because your sin is not immediately judged, your heart gets more set in continuing to sin. And it gets more set because you think you got away with it. You think, oh, this is okay. No big deal. I'll never get caught. But the Bible also says that your sin will find you out. It can't be hidden forever. It will be revealed. If not here on the judgment seat of God at the great white throne judgment. Every unbeliever will stand before God and give account for their lives and their resistance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't want that for you. And so what is this unforgivable sin? Read with me Matthew chapter 12 in verse 31. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And the question is, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin? As many people along the ways of the annals of Christianity have come up with all kinds of suggestions, things in our modern day, uh, some have called divorce the unforgivable sin, uh, some have called uh, a bad word or saying a cuss word or per- any particular cuss word, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, unforgivable sin, or, or a bad thought or, or evil wickedness. Uh, some have said it's the sin of homosexuality or lesbianism or any of the other types of sexual sins, adultery. Um, and I'm here to say that none of those sins are the unforgivable sin. Not even blasphemy. Not even blasphemy. And for me, I'm very grateful that blasphemy is forgivable because before I was born again, I was a very blasphemous man toward God. Very. And you go, Ed, well, we don't base salvation on your experience. Amen. Do you remember what Paul the Apostle said as he was describing his life, inspired by the Holy Spirit? He used this phrase, although I was a blasphemer, I did so in ignorance. And when you think of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin, first I want you to understand that this is not a sin of speech, but of the heart. Now I know that Jesus is using the word speak so that the way this sin is manifested will be outward. But remember also Jesus taught us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is not so much just some, you know, you're driving out I-25 and you say some really bad thing and you think, oh my goodness, I've just sinned against the Holy, I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the guy cut me off. I might as well just go for it and live a life of sin now. Thank you for cutting me off and ruining my whole eternal life. Now, we do chuckle at that, but there are some among us that have a very sensitive spirit, very sensitive conscience, and it plagues them. It plagues them. Maybe you're plagued today because of your past, and you're sitting here right now thinking you are unforgivable. Unforgivable. First of all, the sin is not of the speech. It's of the heart. It's not just words spoken. It is reflection of the hardness of someone's heart. 
And secondly, this sin is not a sin that merely minimizes Jesus Christ. Because you can speak against Jesus. And it's a distinction between just saying something against Jesus and then something distinctly against the Holy Spirit. Now remember, the Spirit of God has a sing- one of the singular role among unbelievers today. And that is to draw you to the Father, to convict you of sin. The Holy Spirit is moving on the earth today among unbelievers, among the protesters, among the angry, among the poster, all of those that are in rebellion against God as I speak, the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives to bring them to a place of repentance and conviction of sin. The idea of the, bapti- or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a rejection of the Spirit's work a rejection of his work, his wooing of a person, his testimony of Jesus, bringing your attention back to him. While Jesus was on earth, he was 100% man, as well as 100% God. The sin of speaking against him in humanity could be forgiven. But as the Spirit of God bore witness to his deity, especially of Jesus at Pentecost, the rejection of the Spirit's witness now is final. Can this sin be committed today? Yes. Yes. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be a sin committed today. What is it in summary? It is the total, complete rejection of Jesus and his offer of salvation in your life. That is unforgivable. There is no remedy. There is no appropriation of the blood of Jesus Christ to the unrepentant. You will never enjoy the relationship with Jesus Christ in an unrepentant state. All manner of sin will be forgiven. Adultery, murder, blasphemy, divorce, stealing, homosexuality, lesbianism, transgenderism, thievery, you name the sin. All manner of sin will be forgiven. But the rejection of forgiveness cannot be overcome. It cannot be overcome. I see with the raven and the dove here God's heart for the saved and the lost. It's a reflection of the heart of Jesus that he wants to see in his church. It's easy to love the lovely. And it's easy to love those that love you. The real challenge of surrender and faith is to yield to the agape of God in those that he has allowed to still be alive today. The heart of God is he's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. That's his heart. Many will perish, even as we see with Noah. Many will perish, but that's not his heart. He's, remember we learn in Peter, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Remember that when you think of the raven. There's a lot to be said on these uh, birds, but just think, the clean and the unclean, the saved and the unsaved, the lovely and the unlovely. And you think, you know, which one of us among... Like if I say, okay, in this room, there are lovely and unlovely. Who's going to pick the unlovely? I'm the unlovely one. No, we all think we're the lovely one. 
But even so, any loveliness in our lives is because of the grace of God. <laughs> if you see anything lovely in the person next to you, you just turn around and say to the person next to you, you are lovely. Go ahead, just say it. Say it out loud. Just tell somebody that they're lovely. You are so lovely. What, what you're commenting on is the presence of Jesus in their life. The loveliness. I mean, because think, you know, some of you weren't so lovely this morning, were you? You weren't so lovely at work when you got mad. And yet, what does God do? He washes and cleanses us so that we might emanate. We might express. We might be the aroma of life to so many. You look at your life and you go, oh man, I stink so bad. And the Lord looks at you in Christ and says, oh no, you smell so good. You are in the right place. You have made the right decision to surrender your life to Jesus, to my son, to receive the forgiveness of your sin. So in verse 12, if you come back to Genesis with me, he, find, he waited another seven days and sent out a dove, which did not return again to him anymore. The dove found a resting place, speaking to Noah now, it's time to exit the ark. It's time. It's time to get out. Verse 13 now. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then mark these words. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all the flesh that's with you, birds and cattle, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. So about 371 days later, the earth is finally dry, you're saved, now go. Be fruitful and repopulate the earth. Now go back with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. I want to compare two passages with you, two instructions by Jesus. A lot of what we're studying in the book of Acts, you know, is God is really stirring us up as a church and, and preparing us and prepping us and encouraging us and challenging us and inviting us. It, it isn't new to the book of Acts. Remember, the Bible is one unit with one author. The, the premier character of the Bible isn't Abraham, isn't Isaac, isn't Noah. It's Jesus, Messiah, the seed that we were told that will come and, and bring about the salvation of mankind. So everything's pointing to him, looking to him. So what we're learning in the book of Acts is really a repetition of things that have been said before. So notice with me in chapter 7, verse 1, we have the instruction of God to Noah. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. And we emphasized in our study last time that significance of invitation, invitation, Church, one of the greatest powerful tools you have in ministering to others is inviting people, inviting, come and see, come and hear, come and read this book, come, take this, invitation after invitation after invitation. And we, we looked at throughout the scriptures the significance of the invitations of God, 
Because there are those today who would say, oh, the altar call is not for today. No. Well, no, it's right in line with the invitation, with the heart of God. God is an inviting God. Isn't that great? Aren't you happy he invited you into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? He's an inviting God. And here in chapter 7, verse 1, there's the invitation. But now in chapter 8, verse 16, the invitation now is followed by go. Come and then go. Go out of the ark, he says, you and your wife. Come into the ark for the appropriate, for the specified time, but now it's time for you to go. I want you to mark those. And if they happen to be on the same page in your Bible, it's good to circle both of them and write a little arrow between the two. They were invited to come in. That was the only place of safety. But now that that place of safety has positioned them in a different season of life, it was time for them to go out and go forward. I see this as a spiritual pattern for the believer, for the new covenant believer. Again, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Isn't that such an encouragement? Come to me, you tired, heavy, labor, ready to give up, come to me. But then later in Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples. It's exactly what God told Noah. Come then, come in, go out. Jesus says, you come to me and I, I'm going to send you out. Again, another pattern throughout the scriptures. Come and seek the Lord and then go share his love. Come and worship the king, but then go and work among the world. Come in and study the word of God, but then go out and exercise your faith. It, it, to me, it has a rhythm about it. Don't you feel the rhythm? Come, go. Breathing. Breathing in, and then breathing out. And just like breathing, we have different cadences and timing, and sometimes it's very uh, exacerbated, sometimes it's struggling. Come, go. Come, go. The rhythm of our lives. It speaks to the significance of not being isolated out by ourselves. I think of how many still haven't returned to fellowship. Here, there, or any, any church. They're just, they're just out there. They're not breathing anymore. They're out of rhythm. It's affecting every part of their lives. So, well, you know, I'll just catch five minutes on YouTube. No, it's not going to work. Or, you know, I, I think about God when I'm out golfing. No, that's not going to work. You need to seek first the kingdom of God. The rhythm of seeking first is come and go. Come and go. You know, one of the things that, I, that we teach our pastors and leaders here is the significance of learning how to invite yourself into someone's life. Because not everyone will ever ask you to come. Not everyone will say, I need you here. They might be embarrassed. They, they might not want you to know about what's going on in their life or some, confess some sin. Or they may not even know they can invite you. And so you want to learn to build the kind of trust in someone's life where you can gently invite yourself over. Invite yourself into their lives. Let's go grab a cup of coffee. You know, some of you are waiting. Well, you know, when somebody invites me for a cup of coffee, maybe I'll go. But maybe the Lord's telling you tonight that it's you that God wants you to invite. It's a rhythm he wants you to create where you're reaching out to people. 
I think of how many in a larger church over the years, even as we've grown over the years, where how many are go, oh, you're such an unfriendly church. Nobody talks to me. Nobody talks to me. Nobody talks to you. Who'd you talk to? I'm not talking to anybody until they talk to me. So then that's on this side. Now this guy over here is going, hey, nobody talks to me. And they're talking about this one that never talked to him. And they don't, and I'm not pointing at you in particular, but if my finger hits you, you know, you should probably pray about it, you know, so. But I mean, you think if, if you would just step into someone's life, you'll have more people to minister to than you've ever had in your whole life. One of the tools you have is an invitation. Invite someone. Invite someone into your life. Invite someone into your home. Invite someone down. You don't even have to go somewhere. Go invite someone. Let's just go downstairs in 15 minutes. Let's talk about what God's doing in your life. Another, another tool in your toolbox that will be greatly helpful for you to connect is just this simple question. Is there, what, what is there in your life that I can pray for you? How can I pray for you? What, what is it that, you, that I can just take to God on your behalf? Another great tool you can have is, hey, here's my email address. If you ever need anything, you ever need prayer, you need, just here, here's my email address. Just email me. I'd love to, and then, of course, the response, the, the rhythm is the invitation and then the follow-up. The invitation, then the follow-up. For those of you that feel isolated, feel like you have no ministry, you feel like nobody knows you, you feel like, like it, it, it is, I, I, could, I could say it could be a very valid feeling, but you don't have to feel that way. Well, but Ed, I'm just so, I'm just so uh, nervous and shy. And, and okay, well then start praying that the Lord will give you another nervous, shy person to reach out to, and then you guys can just have at it, you know? How are you? I don't want to say, I don't want to say, I don't want to say. Like, go, it's okay to be shy. There's other shy people. Pray that God will lead you to one. Why? Because that's the rhythm of God. That's the new covenant rhythm. That's the old covenant rhythm. Come in to go out. And learn that perhaps you see something on someone's face and it doesn't even have to be somewhere. You just kind of invite yourself into their life. Are you okay? Are you all right? Well, what are you asking that for? Because like, you just look tired. You look sad. How can I help you? Are you all right? And even if you get the response, oh, I don't need any, that's okay. God connected you. Take the rhythm. Take them to the Lord. Come and go. Come and go. That's the work of God on the earth today. And just think of the power of the church of Jesus Christ if we would live with that rhythm. If that would be, I mean, really, that's the rhythm of our lives. Responding to the leading of the Holy Spirit and then and, and hearing it, responding it, and stepping into people's lives. Unbelievable, the potential of the church in these last days. There is no one in the world right now speaking the truth of God except for his church. No one. And if you're silent, then the voice of God on the earth is silent. It's so beautiful. What an open eye, but Ed, they don't listen. Oh, they're so loud. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Because even in the darkest of rooms, the smallest of light brightens up. Darkness is dispelled. We're just the ones that plant and water but God gives the increase. And you know, we're moving into a time in our culture where logic and reason is no longer a valid expression of conversation. That's why you even get more frustrated because the things you're hearing, even with the latest decision with Roe v. Wade, the things that you're hearing are some of the most illogical, nonsensical responses 
to validate the murder of babies in the, room, in the womb. And if you get caught in the trap, you will be doubly frustrated. So let me, let me give you an idea. First of all, first of all you, you should know the biblical answers to the concerns in this world. You should know the biblical answers. You don't need to defend them. You just need to know them. You need to know the value of the sanctity of life. You need to know in Psalm 139 that, that life begins at conception. You need to know the basics. You don't need to convince. God does the convincing. You just need to be able to share the truth. And one of the tactics and techniques that I use in my own life to help minimize my frustration is that when I'm having a difficult conversation with someone, I imagine in my mind a table in between us. And in my conversation, I'm taking the facts and I'm just putting them on the table. Just going to lay them out. I'm not going at them. I'm not like, getting caught up in it. I'm not, hopefully, I mean, I'm not perfect at this, but this is one of the tools I use in my mind so that I don't get caught up in all the emotion and all the rhetoric and, oh, I don't know, and that's such a good argument. You're so right. I'm so wrong. I shouldn't have believed the Bible for 30 years. I, I, I put this, I put a table out, and I just remember that I can't convince. I'm just going to put it there. I'm going to put it there. I'm going to put it there. And I hope in their heart of hearts, the Holy Spirit will say, well, just pick that one up and go home with it. That was interesting. Not, not the idea where I stumped them. Ha, ha, ha. But rather, let the Holy Spirit influence. And I know they're not going to participate. You know, it's like, well, let's play a little game. Let's put a tape. They're not going to participate. But that's on them. I'm not going to try to force anything. I'm not, and if, if, they're, if I sense that there's a, like they're just getting you know, out of control, I'm just going to back off put my stuff on the table and just back off. I remember recently in someone, uh, we were in a dialogue and I can see that she was getting very, very, very angry. And, and I, I very gently said, I, I thought you wanted to talk about this. Do you not want to talk? I don't want to talk about it ever again. Okay, that was my answer. I, the Lord used me to the capacity he could use me. And now I'm praying for the next one. Someone's going to be watering Someone that will plant another seed. Listen, the conversion of the world is not on our shoulders. But to display the love of God is our privilege. It is our privilege to be messengers of the agape of God. It is our privilege to, to, from that place of abiding in Christ, to go into the world and to be used by him. The rhythm, breathing in, come and go, come and go. Even today is part of the rhythm. You've come to a gathering and now you're going to go. Well, we're almost out of time. Actually, we are. Verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord. If you like to write in your Bibles, just write, the first thing he does when he gets out is he worships. He worships. Relationship of worship again begins on the earth, on the ground. And he took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing I, as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and the day and night shall not cease." And I love Noah's attitude here. He comes and he worships. 
He's not going to play. He's not going to build. He's not going to rest, like build a house for himself. First thing he does is worship. And I know sometimes we use the word worship, and we, it has a very narrow definition, as if it was only the music before a Bible study. And that's only a portion of it. When you and I worship, we present ourselves to him and bear all before him. Some of you prayed today in worship. Some of you repented today in worship. Some of you gave in worship. Some of you bit your tongue, if you will, and walked and surrendered and submitted to the Spirit in worship. And of course, some of us sang in worship. Some of you made a decision to follow Christ in worship, to surrender an area of your life. While you're listening to Bible study, you're worshiping. While you're praying, you're worshiping. In worship, we find ourselves in the very presence of God, receiving and being reminded of the very promises of God, resting in his protection. And you know, Jesus delights in our worship. He notices not only our lips, but our heart. And he just loves it when his children worship. Really good. Okay, so here I have a line in my note. I wrote it on purpose. One more thing if we have time. It's right there. I've got to do this. So I'm going to make time because this is really amazing. And that is, remember Noah made it to the hall of faith. Remember when we studied Hebrews, he made it to the hall of faith. I want you to consider the elements of faith that he demonstrates. And I'll just give them to you very quickly. In verse 6, Noah in faith waited patiently for 40 days after seeing the mountaintops before sending the raven out to search for dry land. In verse 8, Noah, in faith, patiently waited seven more days before sending a dove out to search for dry land. In verse 10, Noah, in faith, patiently waited another seven more days before sending out the dove again. Verse 12, Noah, in faith, patiently waited seven more days before sending the dove out again. Verse 13, Noah, in faith, patiently waited 29 more days before removing the covering of the ark. And then finally in verse 14, Noah in faith patiently waited another 57 more days until the earth was completely dry. Noah's great faith and patience in God is unquestionable. He lived a life trusting and patiently waiting for God. And it just spoke to me. Again, I wanted to develop this, but I'm not going to. Maybe you can develop it in your prayer time. But we asked the question, how did, God, how did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord? I think a part of the answer is he learned how to patiently wait on the Lord. That patiently waiting is actually a place of finding the grace of God. The psalmist understood it in Psalm 27 verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So Father, we want to learn to wait, to be the men and women you desire us to be. We pray for your Holy Spirit to take what we've learned and studied tonight and give us great application for our lives. And we thank you for the example of Noah, who points us to a far greater example in his life to our Savior Jesus. And we're grateful for you, Lord. Even as we are faithless, you remain faithful. Build and encourage and strengthen our faith in Jesus' name.
Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.